This is an ABC podcast. Bronnie McIntosh is a fire and rescue officer. She knows what it's like to use the jaws of life to pry open a smashed upside-down car and then crawl inside to pull someone out. At the time she joined the service, there weren't so many women on the front lines of the service. It was thought that to be a fiery, you had to have a man's physique and a man's strength. But Bronnie thinks that the opposite is true, that fire and rescue services absolutely need women and people of diverse backgrounds to do their jobs properly. Bronnie can do that thing that fireys need to do. They have the self-mastery that allows you to defeat every normal human instinct to escape danger and to run towards danger instead. It's an ability honed by her years crash-tackling opponents, playing rugby in New Zealand and Australia, and by her coaching of a gay men's rugby team called the Convicts. Today, Bronnie is creating a pathway for young women into the fire service that's called Girls on Fire. Hi, Bronnie. Hi, Richard. What are you typically doing, you and your crew, when you're on duty and just before you get the call to attend some scene of something or other somewhere? Depends on where your station is as to what you're doing. Also, the time of day. Generally, the morning time at a fire station is a busy time making sure all your equipment, the vehicle, your crew are all ready for what may happen throughout the shift. Uh, So you could be doing anything from checking that the truck is operationally ready uh, or checking any of the equipment that's on there, or you could be in the middle of having your breakfast or if it's later in the day, any other meal, you could be out already doing part of your core role of fire prevention and preparedness in the community, or you could be in the shower or on the toilet. So you could be absolutely anywhere <laughs> when the alarm comes in. It's like, I mean, I'm, I, I suppose all I have in my head is that stupid, you know, cliches from the movie, the fire rings, you jump down the pole, you put your coats on and, and then you head off. I'm sure it's not like that. Or is it like that? I don't know. It is like that. Really? There are a few stations right. that have a fire pole and um, and where, where they are, the firefighters absolutely, well, that's the quickest way down if they're multi-storey fire stations, such as our headquarters station in town. Um, And that is the quickest way. And then you need to have your personal protective clothing on within a minute and on the truck and out the door. So speed is everything to the emergency. So um, yeah, that sort of stereotype, the movie picture of the firefighters coming down the pole, getting in the gear quickly and out in the truck, that is an absolute (laughs) true reflection. When you arrive on the scene, so when it, particularly if it's something like a, a, a complicated car accident or a terrible fire, I'm imagining that there's a lot of people running around shouting different things. How important is it and how hard is it just to get like good information when, when you arrive on the scene, Ronnie? Yes, it is very uh, chaotic. You Not only are you managing your own emotions, but the actual scene is very chaotic. You've got casualties not doing well, you've got possibly multiple multiple vehicles involved, um, you know, screaming people, you've got a house that's on fire or whatever the emergency is. The, the great thing is that we're really well trained in what we call command and control. So there's a structure of somebody who is in charge, the incident controller, and then everyone has a role underneath that. So the reporting lines of communication 
are well drilled into us. Because you see, if it were me, and I think for most people arriving on the scene, you, your instinct would be, now can everyone just keep quiet for a moment so I can just think? I mean, and you can't do that, can you? And that won't happen anyway, right? No, I mean, you're definitely right. thinking on the fly. Right. So the first arriving station officer is the incident controller. And on the way to the job, so you receive a printout of information and you are already pre-planning what's going to happen before you get there. And then once you first lay eyes on the incident, then your next stage of planning happens. And is it like a military operation insofar as there's an officer in charge giving direct orders and so on? It would have to be like that, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it has to be, yeah. Because everyone everyone has that role. So depending on the nature of the, of the incident, it's about safety first. So we will risk a lot to save a lot, but we will risk little if it's, there's not going to be much saved. For example, a house fire, if everybody is out, most likely the house is going to be condemned because of the fire and water damage anyway. So we won't risk our firefighters going in, you know, to save anything if there's not a person in there to be saved. At a car accident, um, there's more, you know, we might risk more because we've got to get up close and personal with it in order to bring people out of that accident. Now, attending the scene of a car accident, you're often called upon to use that device known as the jaws of life. And it's, it's just occurred to me that I don't, I think what, <laughs> I don't really know what the jaws of life is. I know it's good for getting people out of a, a smashed up car. I'm imagining some kind of giant hydraulic can opener or something. What is it and, and how do you use it, Bronnie? Yeah, so the jaws of life is one of those um, kind of throwbacks from the, the fire shows on TV, it's actually is a hydraulic rescue tool and we have a, a range of them, but it is exactly like that, a hydraulic can opener. It's a, it is? It's a hydraulic <laughs> right. tool that can either crush, spread um, or uh, cut metal or, you know, any, any kind of objects and things that need to be moved either apart or crushed together so as to make access for us to rescue somebody. So if it's powerful enough to do that, I mean, it, it sounds like a very, you know, quite a large device. You have, you've got to get on the scene. What's it like to operate that thing that can peel open the sheet metal of a car? Yeah, it's pretty powerful. I mean, it, the sense of satisfaction when you actually spread chunks of metal apart yeah. in order to create an opening that can help us all work better to bring somebody out is very satisfying. It's a very powerful tool. Um, and... They're all different sizes. So some of our new ones are battery operated. They've got quite a heavy battery, but we also have ones that work in combination, a combi tool, which is quite uh, quite manageable. And so you can spread, crush and cut all with the same tool. So you're using this very, very powerful tool, but the clock's ticking, isn't it? You've got an injured person inside that car. You've got to do it quickly, but very carefully. Yeah, it's actually the ultimate teamwork experience and operation. We're often working very closely with the ambulance who are usually on scene and they're managing the, the medical aspects of the casualty or casualties. And all we're doing is just supporting them to create space in order to safely remove the casualties so that we can quickly get them transported to hospital. Tell me about an incident you attended with the Jaws of Life not so long ago in Bathurst with a, a teenage girl and her father in a, in a car. Yeah, so that was an interesting one because the poor young person, she was just learning to drive. So she had her L plates on, her dad was in the passenger seat and she went off the road and it rolled down an embankment. And so we used tools then to actually bring that she was fine. She had come out of the, the car, no problem. 
and um, but the dad he needed to be helped out. So yeah. So how was he? Was he was 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 he like trapped in a crumpled car? Effectively, he was he? he was trapped by what we call confinement. So where uh, or by compression, really, the front of the car had crushed down into the footwell. So we needed to use the tools to free up the space in the footwell where the pedals are, in order to be able to to lift him out. And um, we actually ended up sliding him out through through the window. Right. And that was you, wasn't it? You yeah, were, you were as sent a to crawl team, in. Yeah. We right. don't do anything by ourselves. Everything's team-based. Um, so, yeah, I was I was actually the station officer at that particular call, so it was the crew actually crawling in. I wonder how relieved that poor girl was to see her dad get pulled free. He was yeah, alive. Yeah, and he was fine. He, he was actually fine? was fine. It was just that his, his legs were trapped and so it was more just manoeuvring to bring him out. And how was the girl once you, re- you you rescued her dad from that? Oh, she was totally shocked and um, you know freaked out as you are. You've got a lot of a lot of fear and a lot of shock going on at any kind of accident scene. But um, yeah, I guess just relieved and glad that it wasn't worse. It could have been way worse. I don't know. I'm sure you don't get. It's not all happy endings, of course. But uh, man, a day like that must be really rewarding to work on. Yeah, it's actually whenever we have incidents, be it a fire or an accident, the teamwork really comes together. The closeness of your crew that you work with, because you've achieved something and you've got that satisfaction and you've you've managed your teamwork and your different skills that you bring to that operation, it's a very satisfying feeling and it brings your team closer together at the end of it. How did you get started in this kind of work, Ronnie? I first knew about being a firefighter through a friend that I worked with on the council. Um, I didn't know that it was even an option. In high school, I wanted to be a police officer because I had um, had some great experiences uh, in the PCYCs. But um, as soon as this friend, I was playing rugby, I was playing a lot of competitive rugby and travelling a lot at the time, and this fellow suggested to me that it was a great job to fit in with all of my rugby activities. How so? Is it that um, thing, like I said, running towards danger? I, um, I, I guess definitely the physicality. Mm. Um, there is, you know, there's a good, it's a good metaphor across from the, the demands of rugby, the physicality, the teamwork, yeah. the, um, the, the courage to step forward, the yeah. camaraderie. Um, and at that time, it was the great rostering. So you work shift work, you've got a lot of time off, you've got time at the station when you're not busy responding to calls or doing your community preparedness, you every station has a gym, so it's encouraged for you to maintain your physical fitness and strength. And so all of those things as a package, it just was the perfect job. I wish I had have discovered it earlier. I'm sure they don't let anyone in though. I mean, what kind of what kind of hoops do you have to jump through before they let you become That's a, a good question. Officer? It's very competitive. But really? It's also, yeah, we have about 7,000 applicants a year for 120 positions at Fire and Rescue New there South Wales. There are that many people who are ready to come forward to do this kind of work. Yes. Yes, that's amazing, isn't it? But also I think because the conditions are so good and there is a greater understanding now that the role is not just being in hot, heavy, dangerous situations. The role is very diverse and so it appeals to a lot of people who like that, the physicality and the community helping and engagement aspects. So it's not just uh, fires and car accidents. What other kind of work will you do in this in this job? Uh, if you're a rescue operator, you do other industrial 
rescue, domestic rescue. You know, you can have a kid with their finger stuck down the um, plug hole. You buy, uh, feet stuck into bikes. You could have, um, as you probably heard in the TED Talk, you, you can have... Um, Penis rings that need to be removed. Um, now, now, so we have all those tools. Hang on, hang on. we've got to go back there to that one because because you sort of referred to that in your TED talk as a blazing hot penis rings. That I, I I'm sure you're not trained for that kind of. Where are you? I don't know. Uh, we are trained as a rescue operator. We are trained to remove any kind of metal from any kind of body part. And we have the tools to do so. Poor so, chap, I hope he was all right. <laughs> I, I wasn't actually on that job. Right. But, um, but it is something to put into the community's minds because we think big, hot, heavy, big industrial wool store fires. So what was required? Bolt cutters fact, or what? So. Sorry, I just, have to, I just have to ask this. Bolt cutters or uh, something or what? No, we have these um, a little Dremel, sort of a very tiny... <laughs> Drill cutting, cutting tool. We put some what are called shims between the metal and the skin to make sure that you don't accidentally cut too far. While, while someone's standing by saying, "Now don't move!" All right? Yes, yes. Very, no, we're all still. got our hands out, holding things in in perfect, stabilised fashion. Oh dear, dear, oh dear, oh dear. Tell me how how uh, you you were called to rest. Well, a story about how a baby's head had got itself lodged between the bars of its crib. Yeah, so that's a funny funny thing. I I only learned it at the time but as a baby's head comes through the bars of their cot, these little raised um, bits in the back of your head mean that it can't just pull back out the right. same way it went in. Because a baby's to... head's got tectonic plates that can shift and, <laughs> and it sort of these. sets... Right. So a baby can stick its head out but <laughs> yep, it might not be fine. able to bring it back no, in again? No, exactly. Right. So you one of the ways is to turn the baby up 180 <laughs> degrees so they then come back out right. forwards into the cot yep. or else, as we did in one of the cases... Um, with Crow's Nest Station, we use the spreaders, so what you call the jaws of life, but to spread the bars just enough to be able to pull the, the uh, head back through. That would also be a good day's work too. Very happy mum and oh, quite a happy yeah. baby too. And also by the time people call us, they're usually quite stressed. They've tried a few things, same as the... The penis rings. People don't call us straight away. They're going to try a few things before they uh, call in the uh, the big guns. So you never know. <laughs> Every day is a new day yeah. in, in in the in the in the job. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so with this uh, kind of work, are there are there incidents like someone who might have I don't know just had a fall and is living alone and and can't get up again? What happens there? So much. With so many elderly living alone and not being properly cared for, um, I actually find this one of the saddest and hardest parts of our job is we go to a call that's called Concern for Welfare. And often it's an elderly person who has had a fall. Um, perhaps they haven't been seen by the neighbours or friends for a few days and then they call the police. The police call us because we have all those tools for gaining entry and often we go there and find an elderly person living in terrible conditions because they haven't, they've slipped through the cracks of different social systems. Um, and so, and, or they might've broken their hip and not been able to move. Oh, they dear. might also be from a, a culturally and linguistically diverse background. They don't speak English. So there's some language barriers. Um, 
So, yeah, we go to a lot of those actually and, and medical assistance calls as well. And some of them would be lying on the ground half starved, I imagine, as well. Starved, cold. Oh, uh, we had one recently where the woman had fallen out of bed and then had just dragged herself. So she'd broken her broken a hip. I mean, the, the pain threshold of some of these people uh, dragged herself to be able to make the call to get help. You... Uh when you started, like I said, there weren't that many women in, in the service. And it was often thought, like I said, for a long while, that fire and rescue was a man's job. It required a man's build, a man's strength and all that sort of thing. What's wrong with that picture to your mind, Ronnie? The picture that it used to be? Yeah, it has to, yeah that it has to be a man to do yeah, this kind of work. Oh, I think, I think back then it did have to be. Um, they... They sort of would pull people off the street, big, strong footballer type guys. You know, oh, you'll be great in the fire service. The but you job, can kick down a door. That yeah, kind of you thing. can kick down yeah, a door and right. drag this big hose. The fires were big industrial factory fires, and we didn't have so much installed fire protection and education that we have now. So because of that, it means that one, people are safer in their homes and in um, business, uh, commercial uh, premises, but. It, it also means that now we can have a diverse team of firefighters because of the range of jobs as well. It's not just those hot, heavy fires. Traditionally, firefighters just did that. They fought fires. That was the job. Nowadays, uh, you know, there's so many more medical assistance calls, concern for welfare, rescue incidents, whereby that size, the physicality is less important. Don't get me wrong, you still want a big, strong person on your team and all of the team, you want to still be really strong. The The gear is is heavy, the demands of it in the heat and in the personal protective clothing is a lot. You need a good level of fitness. But you also, there is such value in that smaller person yeah. that can be nimble, can get into a confined space, can scale up a ladder quickly and down through a manhole um, and someone... flexible too, because you know, uh, you know, if, if men are typically, typically physically stronger, women are typically bendy, aren't they? Women are more flexible. Flexible, as I've seen in yoga classes, where a woman is <laughs> sticking her ankle over her ear and going, "Can't you do this? Can't you do this?" So, so there are advantages for a fire and rescue officer who, who's smaller and more and more flexible. Absolutely, that that all those physical diverse traits, but also we are glorified problem solvers. Our job is to solve a problem that is there. And so having the diverse thinking about how the different ways is to solve this problem, um, having diverse fire officers is going to help with that, regardless of even if you don't lift a tool, just brainstorming out the ways in which we can work smarter rather than harder physically. So you went on a Churchill Fellowship, which is a brilliant thing to do. Uh, what did you want to, where did you go and what did you want to find out? I went on a Churchill Fellowship in 2016 to find out how other fire services were addressing this global problem of a lack of diversity um, and also how they were adapting to this changed demand of the role. And so I went to, oh, wow, about nine countries in my time. And I looked at three different recruitment strategies to try to get a diverse workforce. And as byproducts, I looked at the, the cultural implications of all of them. And I found that all fire services were facing the same problem, that their role was changing away with better fire protection. Their role was changing away from the big, hot, heavy fires. 
In places like the UK and Europe, they were undergoing massive fire service reform and austerity measures, which means they had to do a lot more with a lot less funding. Oh, yes, doing more with less. Yeah, we're used to that mantra, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I looked at quotas and government-sanctioned numbers uh, recruitment. And for those, I went to Japan, Hong Kong and India. And then I looked at targeted recruitment, so countries that were identifying where they wanted their diverse demographics to come from and running programs that levelled the playing field for that demographic. So, so, that- you, so you met women firefighters in India and, and what was it like for you to sort of plonk down and say, hi, I'm from Australia, what are you, what are you guys doing? Was it, it, was India it blew my mind. I knew that there might not be much for us to learn from their quota system and um, their quotas were introduced there to make 33% of all government jobs have women to try to address the, the social status issues for women. And, yes, I met these these uh, female firefighters called the Female Firefighters of Rajasthan. It was up in Jaipur. I had found a YouTube clip about these women and, of course, I wasn't able to make any contact before I went. So just as luck would have it and the way things roll out on a Churchill Fellowship, I went to the fire station that I had um, read about online and it just happened to be this recruitment day for their province for firefighters and there was probably, I don't know, 70 guys there, maybe two women that were coming there for the recruitment day. And uh, fortuitously, there was a a man who spoke English. So he sort of translated for all of us. I was in my full officer ceremonial dress, you know, tie and all in the blistering (laughs) heat, sweating like anything with my cap on. And uh, they were just probably the first time I've seen a white woman in uniform. This nonetheless. strange outfit, yeah. right, yes. <laughs> and um, so it was very exciting for all of us. And through the translator asked about these female firefighters of Rajasthan and showing them the picture of them. Well, then they came downstairs and I just started crying. I just couldn't believe that I was getting to meet these women because I had read about how this program was implemented to try to address the problem of child brides. And so some of these women had been snapped from their villages um, to avoid being child brides to to join the government and be firefighters. And what, yeah, so what was it like to talk to these women then? Well, they didn't speak English, so, yeah. um, you know, it was through just a, a little bit through though. the translator. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you could see that um, it was it – was, they weren't confident to speak out about themselves and their role. Um, they were very shy and then they sort of got whisked away by the uh, the other leaders that were there. And were you thinking, gee, it'd be great to get these women down to the pub? And, oh, uh, I yeah. was getting selfies with them <laughs> <Right>. and like, <laughs> just like, oh, this is amazing. It's so great to see you. You could come to Australia. and. <laughs> like I said, you've also been a champion rugby player, Bronnie, as, as well. I, I suppose this is all of a piece of learning, again, the, the teamwork, the... And that absolute willingness to run towards something terrifying rather than (laughs) run away from it. Where did you learn to play rugby? I started playing in New Zealand. So I was New Zealand um, raised and I think just that upbringing where rugby is the religion, that um, it was just in my blood. I used to, I was the crash test tackle dummy for my brothers growing up. And so when I discovered it, um, later on, I just had this sort of natural affinity for it. Um, and you're right. Yeah. Like who only a rugby player runs 
you know, full steam into another person. Well, I think that's the pleasure of the game because it it does look so unnatural to want to do that to (laughs) each other. I think that's amazing. What was Rotorua like during your childhood there? Uh, Rotorua is an interesting place, Um, fantastic, um, a great town. It was a little bit limiting growing up, Um, growing up there. I think there was just a few sort of social aspects that didn't work for me at the time. Like what? Um, I think it's just, you know, it's a very, it was very, I I describe it as quite a violent sort of upbringing. Um, Culturally, we were all, we all just grew up in a, in a way that there was lots of fights all the time at school, you know, at home. Oh, you mean among the kids, not yeah, the, amongst more than the, the kids. adults? Yeah, right. amongst the kids. Yeah. So you're, everyone's punching on boys and girls. Yeah, all, yeah. All the time. You know, we well, we played bull rush just as a standard every morning tea and lunch break, and so that just you know is a physicality in itself. And did you like that or hate that? Well, I was lucky in that I was a physical kid, so I could survive in it. But it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't great for me kind of in a in a brain stimulation way. Um, so yeah. so one sense you can develop that that I suppose that need to be ready to have a fight if you have to, but I might not be getting the education you want. Did you come from a, a working class family there? Very working class, yes. Yeah. My my parents were born and raised in Auckland and so they had moved over to Australia and I was born here. I've got three older siblings and then we moved back to New Zealand when I was three and I grew up there in Rotorua. And did that mean everyone was always working on something or other? Was there that culture in the house that someone was always working on something? Oh, yeah. We were a very busy family, busy doing, just always doing, even now. So uh, my mum was working full time and uh, my dad, yeah, my dad was always working and travelling for work. So you said you told us your dad was the first person to bring frothy coffee to that part of the world. How did he do that? Well, strangest thing, uh, he was a printer by trade. But when they moved back to New Zealand and uh, my mum wanted to live in Rotorua because it was closer to where her family was from, he got this opportunity to, to go into this coffee lounge, the Kenya Coffee Lounge. And because they had spent some time in Australia, which at that time was much further advanced and they knew of cappuccinos but he went there they brought this coffee lounge they had never been in um, the food industry ever before but there was an old coffee machine there called a Palermo coffee machine and they used to just use it to fill hot water from and he got the plumber to come and fix the piping on it and all of a sudden it could blow steam so Hallelujah. Cappuccinos he created come to, to these run frothy coffees Podcast, broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. You were saying in your childhood in Rotorua, there was a fair bit of violence amongst the kids. Tell me about this this method your primary school had in how it dealt with violence between the kids while you were at school. 
This is actually a good example of the culture of the day back there. I mean, it would never happen now. But we had this complaint box in year three in my primary school at Linmore Primary, and any child could make a complaint against another child. And then the class, it was sort of trial by class, would decide the punishment. And the punishment you range... See, what, you see, that's just, that's that's interesting. I, I've never heard of anything like that before in my life. But So so you, so someone can put a complaint yep. in the complaints box, then it goes to a jury of your peers, which is the, your fellow, fellow, what, kids in... Year three. Year three. Right. So, so what that's what happened? Nine or something yeah. then. And so was there a complaint against you? Yes. Um, a fellow put in a complaint that I tackled him too hard in the game of bull rush in the schoolyard and pulled his arm out of the socket. So he put this complaint in and somehow my friend Kim ended up on the complaint as well. And so instead of the trial resulting in us putting bins on the table or cleaning up or something, our punishment was to be caned. Caned by whom? Caned by the the complainant. And he got to cane both Kim and I. Um, I was in a short pair of shorts and Kim was in a little dress. Our teacher, Miss Stewart, was there in the classroom with the whole class watching. We stood at the front of the class and bent over, touched our toes, got to whack us four times on the back of our legs. So we had these massive welts. Of course, our mothers were ropeable about it. I'm pretty sure it got stopped after that, but that was the, uh, yeah, pretty much sums up Rotorua culture at school. And how did you go to school as a teenager? Uh, well, I then left Rotorua at the start of high school to come and live with my father who had moved over here. And then as soon as I got over here, I got to a really good school at Fort Street and immediately I was just more engaged, more cerebrally stimulated in a group that I belonged to and the culture obviously was more about learning and engagement and sport and participation in the world than um, tribal belonging to your to your tribe. Yeah, but what happened when teenage hormones kicked in? Did you come off the rails a little bit at that point? Uh, not not in Australia, no. I was more off the rails before I left New Zealand. Right. I, um, yeah, sort of wasn't travelling too well in Rotorua in that sort of school system and had seen a child psychologist that my mum took me to thinking there was something wrong with me. Turns out I just needed more work more to do and more, more stimulation. Yeah, right. How did you start playing rugby proper as opposed to being a crash tackle dummy for your, for your brothers? <laughs> I started playing as a way to keep fit in the off season from touch football, which I'd gotten quite involved in at school, and also to meet people in Auckland when I had moved back to New Zealand at the end of sort of high school. And I first played with a club called Ponsonby in Auckland, and that was my first real rugby and uh, it just was an absolute fit. I think just from the first tackle, the first run into somebody, I just felt like this <laughs> is for me. <laughs> as weird as that sounds. And also just the culture and the team was very diverse. You've got your props, you've got your skinny wingers, I, which, of which I was at that time. And um, just and the sense of belonging in it was incredible. And how were you at full on tackling? How am I? Yeah, how were you oh, and, and are you? Yeah. Oh, I think all of that pedigree upbringing from being stood in the backyard by my brothers while they practised their tackles just served me so well because I then was a gun tackler. In fact, I would say that was probably the strength of my game and if I was more skilled in the other areas, probably could have gone even further. But uh, nonetheless, I was a very good tackler and uh, I loved 
the uh, the old spear tackle, the grade three tackle. You can do that? I felt that. I really? was like, this is fantastic. It's kind of like using the, the hydraulic rescue tools. The sense of satisfaction <laughs> at the end of it is just immense. <laughs> so you joined the Australian women's team in 1998. Uh, 1998. Uh, how did you feel there being on the grounds at the Rugby World Cup in 1998? Oh, amazing. Again, just the sense of satisfaction, the sense of pride when you stand there and hear your national anthem and you're playing in a sport that you love with people that you're so connected to. And uh, that World Cup was in um, in Amsterdam and we were, you know, very new to the world rugby scene in Australia. So we were complete underdogs and, um, yeah, the, uh, the sense of pride and excitement was, was incredible. And victory in that kind of scenario? Yes, we won a few games. We came fifth that in that World Cup. Um, we've always just felt, and every World Cup we've just played again in New Zealand in November, we've always felt underdone. We've always felt that we would be a top four finishing team if we had more support from the Australian Rugby Union, if we had more of a program, more lead up, more funding, more investment, more knowing that we are here, we are good and we need to be supported. You came on board to coach a team called the Convicts, Australia's first gay men's rugby team, Far out. How did you like coaching men in that kind of environment? I love those boys. You do? The, the convicts are amazing. I also coached the uh, the Melbourne Chargers. I had a stint down in Melbourne and coached them. I'm a bit of a sucker for the, the gay rugby setup, mostly because the story behind it is fascinating. You know, it was named after uh, Mark Bingham, who was one of the rugby players that took down the hijackers in 9-11. Oh, and that flight, United 93 that flight the, that crashed into the field in um, Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania. Right. Yeah. So he, that, he was one of he was, he one, was of those one of those. He played for the crashed, San Francisco right. Fog, and so then they, being the the network that they are and the the belongingness of rugby, all of his friends and the global you know gay supporters made this World Rugby Cup called the Bingham Cup, named in his honour. And so, uh, yeah, I coached the Sydney Convicts for 2008, was in Dublin, Ireland, and then 2010 was in Minnesota. How different was it coaching men in that kind of an environment? Uh, it's actually quite similar to coaching women. And I think maybe that was uh, what was relatively easy is it's about people management. And I loved that they just were so, they were so easy to coach because they really want to play good rugby. And it wasn't about their sexuality. There's a, a lot of straight guys on the team as well, but it was about people who had been marginalised in a sport that reinforces such masculine, hegemonic kind of thinking that um, they were so grateful to be able to participate fully in, you know, as rugby is. That's all in kind of sport, right? So... It was great. So the convicts went into the final, uh, grand final in Dublin in 2008. Yeah, we won it. You won it. Wow. <laughs> what, how did you put the, the team in the right frame of mind before they ran onto the field? We had this awesome moment together. As you'd expect, you you get quite close. Like I said, with the fire team, you build each time you overcome some challenge and so our teamwork was building throughout the tournament it's tournament style so we played like five games and then uh, because it's such a diverse team and rugby is anyway I just 
stumbled upon this metaphor that we were all in this boat together and unless we got paddling in the same direction and one of the fellows who played on the second team, he had um, drawn this fantastic boat and artwork that somehow resonated for the whole team and we were able just to, using this metaphor, got us all in the boat really clear about which paddle they were holding, how they were paddling it and which direction we were going in and let's go and let's do it. And we did and we won. And we still talk about with some of those convicts players, just that, you know, I actually got hair standing on my end right now, just (laughs) reminiscing about it. (laughs) I think the joy when your team wins a grand final like the Mighty Sydney Swans did in 2005, is, <laughs> is, is that it's, it's the purest feeling of victory because it's bloodless. It's, it's one without the kind of tragedy. It's like the kind of feeling that some warriors get in warfare perhaps, but without the kind of necessary tragedy and lives lost. It's just this... So there's this undistilled joy that's there in victory that's quite daffy and makes you quite silly, I find. Uh, do, you, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even though I've played in a couple of World Cups and I played on a World 15 team, one of the highlights of my rugby career was the first time my club team, the Warringah Rats, won the grand final after years of just torturous defeats by teams that had loaded up players and rep players from other towns. And when we won, exactly what you're saying, there is something that is just exuberating of that once you've overcome obstacles to get there. I mentioned the obvious connection between playing rugby and doing fire and rescue work is that willingness to be able to hurl yourself forward towards, you know, human peril and injury perhaps (laughs) if need be. But it seems like there's another connection there, which is the emotional intensity of it all. And not every rescue you're going to do is going to have a happy ending. In fact, quite a few of them just will not. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the incident you were called to when a car in Sydney in Crow's Nest had a tree toppled onto it. Yeah, you know, you're 100% right. Many don't end well and we don't always get the closure of knowing how things have ended unless it's obviously apparent at the time, like this incident was. This was an old gum tree that had been earmarked by council as a dangerous tree to be removed, but hadn't been. And on this Sunday, drizzly kind of overcast day, this elderly couple were out for a drive to visit family. And this tree came down just crazily right across the front passenger area, um, killed the driver immediately. We're talking you know, these some gum trees, they're like over a ton in weight crushed on this SUV vehicle. His wife had survived, but she was trapped and in a bad way with the tree. And so whilst we have all those hydraulic rescue tools, we actually couldn't even access the metal of the car to try to create that space we talked about earlier because the you've got tree this giant was object so on top of it. full. Right, and right. so we had to get chainsaws out and start working on the tree to remove oh. it before we could even start to use our hydraulic tools. And I was quite a junior firefighter at the time, but I was one of the ticketed chainsaw operators. And so we have these sometimes funny rules in the, in the fire service where you need to have the the blessing from fire and rescue that that you're the chainsaw operator, even if there's somebody who's a tree feller on the shift but hasn't got the certificate. Luckily, we came to our senses and swapped me out and him in to remove the tree. But, um, yeah, that is an example of the chaos of the scene. 
you know, the horn was stuck on blaring, his foot was stuck on the accelerator. So you've got the revving car, the horn going, the wife screaming because she's conscious and can see the magnitude of what's going on. The, the driver is deceased, obviously deceased. And we're all there. It's a, it, we had two trucks. Every incident is a minimum two truck response, but we also had an aerial appliance. We had rescue appliance. Um, and so there's a lot of people on scene trying to, again, you know, manage, communicate and have a plan of how to get the tree off enough that we can then use the tools to create an opening to remove the female passenger. And was she conscious when you could pull her yeah, tree? Yeah, she was conscious. Oh, man. So there's the car accelerator going, the horn is blaring, there's the chainsaw roaring, and she's in agony and distress. How do you think straight? How do you, how do you, do you have some tools? I don't know, some Buddhist tools for composure or something <laughs> in that kind of situation? No, I do think that only through experience do you then master your emotional response. And back to, like I said earlier, the level of training. So we are trained in this command and control system. So um, once the tree was dealt with, and so you just chunk everything down. There's the tree to, to deal with first, then the rescue operators, while that tree is being removed enough and in consultation with the incident controller, the rescue operators are working out what their plan A is, plan B, plan C, plan D, and each plan just rolls into the next if it's not working. And when, you're, when you feel emotions rising to the surface, do you go, I'll just deal with that later? Or do you have to say, do you compartmentalise or what do you do? Yeah, I think what happens is you go into that state of Chicxulub flow. You are just there, focused, and you're tasked with something. And so you know, and I guess from a team perspective, you know that you have to do your part. And if everyone does their part, the synergistic effect will happen. And so, yeah, I think you just go into, this is my job, that's happening over there, but that's just there. And then, you know, you go back to the station, you debrief, you might talk through, you know, what's actually happened, you follow up. We always have an after action review of a traumatic incident like that, um, check in of everyone's well-being. Um, sometimes it's then that you deal with the emotion of it. I remember this always just puts me in mind of that story that um, one of the big differences to soldiers being pulled out of Vietnam and at the end of and so the, the soldiers who were pulled out of repatriated at the end of World War One was that after your service was completed in Vietnam you were often just put on a plane and brought back to Australia but the the servicemen in the AIF in France and Belgium were put on a ship and so they had several months often to talk amongst themselves and to just sort through mm -hmm. the months on that ship to sort of kind of find some way to, is that what you do? Do you, are you able to sort of sit together as a group and talk about what you've just been through with these we things? We do now. We do now. We've gotten, as a service, we've gotten much better about understanding critical incident stress. In those early days, we didn't do it as well. In fact, my first fatality of this young international student, it was two o'clock in the morning. I was at Mossman Fire Station. We went back to the station and I had sat in the back of the van next to this young deceased person holding the head of his friend in the front seat. We went back to the station. We all just went back to bed and I laid there kind of like in corpse mode myself, just thinking, wow, wow, that just was crazy. And we got up in the morning, no one said anything. We had a relieving station officer. No one talked about it. 
got up and went home the next day. So we have evolved so much in the fire service to understand, you know, some people need to talk about it. Some people don't. Some people have humor around managing their emotions of things. So it's, it, it's, everyone's different. And again, just knowing your team and having good management as a station officer of your team's differences and who needs what is definitely the key. Ronnie, a few years ago, you founded an organisation called Girls on Fire. What is that? Girls on Fire You're smiling as you say this. (laughs) I love it. It's my passion project that's growing tentacles in so many directions and now evolving. And each time I just remind myself, this is about being on fire and fire spread. So what is this fiery project that's got tentacles and that that fires up your passion? What is this? So... As you would know, as a Churchill Fellow, um, a key part is the implementation of your research back into Australia for the betterment of Australian society. What I found about recruitment strategies for the fire service, one of the most profound things I saw was these social change programs of girls' fire camps in Canada and the USA. And pretty much in a nutshell, brought that back to Australia and implemented it here in different formats. And what do you do with these camps? So we recruit teenage girls aged between 14 and 19, and we develop a program that's delivered by existing firefighters or emergency service personnel. I collaborate the seven New South Wales fire and emergency services, and we run a program that teaches these young women how to actually step forward in an emergency We teach them about the emergency management landscape, um, why we're having more emergencies due to to climate change, what they can do in their communities to be more resilient and more prepared. Do you you mean like step forward to put themselves at risk or, or not? Step forward to take action. We definitely don't encourage them to... We encourage a risk management principled approach. So rather than run away or get your mobile phone to film somebody in an emergency situation, we encourage them to be the one that because they've got some training and some awareness and confidence to step forward. And stepping forward might just mean calling triple zero to get more help. It might mean running to get your defibrillator at school and getting that to work on a casualties in cardiac arrest. It might be grabbing the fire extinguisher off the wall at school to put out a small fire before it becomes a big fire. Right. So these girls are being trained not just to stand there and do nothing or, or as you say, worse still, film the thing for, for mm-hmm. um, the TikTok or YouTube later down the track, but to do something, to, to step To do up. something, yeah, and have the confidence. So you, we give them the skills and then we empower them with the confidence that they now are that emergency service first responder because the community actually are the first responders. When you think about it, we get called when triple zero gets called. We go afterwards. We're the second responders or third responders. We were, The community are usually first on scene in an incident. And so if they know more about what to do and how to act, then it can really help our job um, and really save lives. Tell me about a program you, you were running in uh, Brewarrina in New South Wales with some uh, large groups of community Aboriginal girls. Mm, oh, that was amazing too. So as a spin-off from our traditional urban fire camp, we've run a cultural inclusion programs. We've recognised a need that in some of these remote and Aboriginal communities that programs such as ours don't go there and these uh, often these young people don't get this exposure. Um, so we went up there in 2021 and we had 32 young, mostly Aboriginal girls come on our program. We stayed at the old shearing 
station quarters from up there and we found girls there who didn't even know how to call triple zero. We learnt there um, that on the missions and some of the missions that they don't have numbers on their houses and so unless you've got local knowledge and you get called to a fire there, you won't know where to go because they're not numbered like our streets are in the urban environment. So it was a fantastic um, not only outreach thing but just a full community engagement piece in which these young women got to and then we put on a display for all their families and the rest of the community in town to show them their skills. Uh, it's very rewarding and um, really exciting to run more of those cultural inclusion programs. Ronnie, as you're telling me this, I'm just sort of becoming aware of the kind of whole worlds of misery that can be avoided by having people who know what to do in a situation like that. Just that kind of preventative effect it can have from making a, a bad scene so much worse than it might otherwise be with years in hospital or loss of life, damage to property, all these things. Yeah, and all these young people, they're learning to drive at this age. So they're either hopping in cars with other P-plate drivers. Most of the car accidents we go to are P-plate drivers, you know, a disproportionate amount. So we drop in those rescue education messages as well so that we're teaching these young people their own personal risk management make the decisions based on the information there, have the confidence to say no to getting in a car. If you are driving, treat it like a machine because we let them use these hydraulic rescue tools to do simulated car crash incidents. So that also helps lock in the, the real danger that cars can be. Does this work offer people, well, young people too, well, such people, a, a degree of dignity in their lives? Their, their program? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's locus of control, isn't it? It's empowering these young girls to, to be okay in their bodies and to be strong and trust their judgment and their decision-making and to see the value of whatever their diverse trait or skill set is that they bring to their team. So we base our programs on how the fire service, fire services work. Everything's team-based. We are solving problems. The problems change, but we as a team just need to organise ourselves in such a way that our different skills, knowledge and experience can be utilised to address that problem in a time-efficient manner. Do you think having this training means you lead a less fearful life? Hmm. I'm still scared of huntsman spiders. <laughs> like, really scared. <laughs> Really? <laughs> <laughs> but, but generally, yes, I'll say I'm, I'm pretty brave. <laughs> right, so, so long as there's not a huntsman on the scene. <laughs> yeah, sorry, you're on your so own. So there can be like blood and horror and <laughs> flames everywhere, but if there's a huntsman on that, yeah, on, the, that's on, it. on the crimp of guard. Over to you, that's right, over teammate. To, you to, to, to whack that down, right. It's been so absolutely brilliant talking with you, Bronnie, and thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Richard, for having me. Bronnie McIntosh is a station officer with Fire and Rescue New South Wales and she's also the founder and director of Girls on Fire, which is that program that we spoke about just then, which brings girls into being the kind of citizens who have a better awareness of what to do in any kind of emergency. And she's also running the Rainbow Fire and Resilience Program as part of World Pride 2023. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. 
For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.